Hello there, Grace family. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Adam. So glad you've chosen to join in on us. Um, we are in a conversation. We're going to finish the conversation today. The truth about lies. Have you ever been a part of a lie that uh, has really grown and uh, potentially caused devastation? When I was in college, I was in a social fraternity. So we had 50, 60 guys. Many of us lived in a fraternity house and others just kind of participated in the activities. And uh, around my junior, senior year, I developed uh, a reputation as kind of a goody, two-shoes, straight and narrow. And I didn't always appreciate that reputation. (laughs) Um, And uh, I remember one time in my kind of dorm room, fraternity uh, room, I had two guys, and we were just in casual conversation. And then over in the corner of our room was um, a unique-looking comb. And uh, they asked uh, what this comb was used for. And um, I I didn't think about it at all. And uh, underneath, I, I have to be a little careful, I can be pretty sarcastic. And I said, oh, that's my roommate's back hair comb. And they looked at me kind of strange, and I said, yeah, he has long back hair and occasionally needs some help of getting the knots out. Well, we kind of changed course of our conversation and never came back around to it, and they had left. And uh, as far as I knew, it had never come up again. Well, uh, they were somewhat uh, surprised and astonished uh, by this new discovery, and so Uh, they began to converse and talk about it and share this discovery with others. Well, uh, many days and weeks went by, and uh, I had never heard any more about this conversation. I think people were somewhat uh, embarrassed to maybe even uh, tell me about it. And uh, about, you know, a week, two weeks later, uh, my roommate was working in the student union, and he had a female coworker come up beginning to question him about his back hair. Fortunately, he was very gracious to me, um, was a little bit more upset with the other two uh, brothers who uh, started spreading this rumor. Um, I probably deserved a little bit more of the consequence of it, but uh, probably many of us um, have been in lies that uh, cause devastation, uh, have the potential uh, to ruin relationships, have significant consequences, uh, damage intimacy. And so over the course of this series, we've looked about uh, the truth about lies, trying to uncover the source of lies, the origin of lies, and how you and I navigate this life with the lies that are so prevalent and uh, present around us. As we uh, kind of end our conversation, I want to look at uh, three scenes in Scripture that gives us a picture of kind of the lies that are encountered. Now, these scenes we've addressed um, in varying length and varying depth, uh, but I think as we compare and contrast these scenes, It gives us uh, wisdom, discernment, encouragement for you and I as we navigate life today. Uh, The scene that we've looked at the last few weeks is the opening scene of Scripture. And uh, 
we see uh, that Adam and then subsequently Eve are created. And they uh, are living in uh, the paradise, the Garden of Eden, uh, with an intimate relationship with God. We see that Adam has been made in the image of God. He's been uh, called to uh, kind of produce, uh, uh, he has dominion over creation. He has this creative freedom within the garden. And uh, we see that he has this close relationship with uh, God the Father. We see that the Trinity is present in his creation. Let us make mankind in our own image. We see in Genesis 2 that uh, God says everything he has made is good, but it was not good for man to be alone. And so he made Eve for Adam as um, his mate, as Um, a helper with a close personal relationship. And so uh, they lived in this paradise with God. And we've seen over the last few weeks the temptation that was brought before Eve and also Adam. And this temptation was that they had freedom uh, to eat of any tree in the garden, including the tree of life that we talked about last week. But there was one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that uh, they had a restraint. And this restraint uh, allowed them to live kind of in the freedom of their relationship with God. But Satan, the serpent, was present and uh, he began to tempt Eve. Now, I remember in my uh, women's studies course at the University of Akron that Uh, Eve, at times, can get a bad rap, right? Uh, But Adam is just as responsible in this story, right? He's the one that's given the direct command. We see a little bit of Eve's ignorance in the story as she acknowledges the tree or uh, maybe the circumstances of what she's been told, that you can't touch it or you will certainly die. We see that maybe she's a little bit more vulnerable. We see... Adam in this picture being very silent and a lack of his leadership. And so they're both very culpable. And uh, we see the temptation. We've kind of looked at it the last few weeks, the idea that this was good to eat, that it was pleasant to look at. And uh, Aiden did a wonderful job as he talked about uh, kind of the first two questions. Did God really say you will not certainly die. And so over the last two weeks, we've explored uh, the, the idea of trusting in the goodness of God, right? The consequences of their choice of sin. And in summary, right, what Satan was trying to get uh, Eve and Adam to believe was that sin is not bad and that God is not good. But he went a step further, Right? He told them about this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This expression of good and evil is Hebrew shorthand for uh, knowing everything. Right? It's Uh, When we talk about maybe the the color spectrum, uh, it's from black to white. It encompasses 
everything that is. That God is the originator, the determiner, the authority, the boundary setter, the ultimate meaning maker of the entire universe. And what Satan was trying to do was he was seeking to erase the creator and creature distinction. He was trying to minimize the authority that God deserved, that he had as the creator, and tempting Eve and Adam um, to this power to uh, define their own authority, to take the reins themselves. He was insinuating that God kept his creatures dumb and docile to protect his fragile ego. He was basically saying, if you want real power, well, stop bowing down to God and instead become God. He's basically saying the fruit is your ticket to supremacy. Eat it and take a dose of divine power for yourselves. Take sweet liberation from your cosmic oppressor. You see that this was a colossal lie, that God had given them a lot of creative freedom that he was made in his image, but he was not equal to them. Even though humanity was the pinnacle of creation, they were his representatives and not his replacement. You see this goal or desire to be like God is at the fabric of many world religions. Take Mormonism, for example. You've probably interacted uh, with some who are of the Mormon faith. And while they're often friendly and nice and loving, they're significantly deceived. They believe that God um, kind of came about um, through this idea of not being the supreme being of the universe, but rather attained that status through righteous living and persistent effort. You see, their belief about God ends up bleeding into their belief about humanity, that they believe that any human can also become a God, as we see in the teachings of their prophet Joseph Smith in their doctrines and covenant statements, that they teach salvation is a combination of good works and faith. Or, for example, uh, a New Age movement, which is built on this idea of Eastern mysticism. It's one without a lot of absolutes. Um, It's New Agers believe that all is one and one is all, thus erasing all more boundaries. There's no absolutes, no distinction between good and evil. It's a counterfeit philosophy that appeals to the feelings of individuals leading them to think that they can become their own God or enhance their own person. This final enticement in the garden had uh, Satan written all over it because this was the lie that he himself believed. We see in Isaiah 14 that is ascribed to Satan says that you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaman. I will ascend above the top of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
Adam and Eve's sin, sinless state didn't last long, and this cycle of disobedience was embedded into the DNA of humanity that they would know good and evil, that their eyes were open to sin and rebellion. I read of an illustration that made a lot of sense. It was at, as if a blind person was promised sight. And at the promise of sight, all that they saw was, was torture. Or, or think of it like this, maybe a deaf person was promised to be able to hear, but all they heard was screaming voices. You see, their eyes were open to their own sin and rebellion. And we've looked at kind of the the outcome and the consequences of this choice, that we see that death has now come through their disobedience, that the curse promised thorns and thistles, that there were consequences related to their choice. Pain and childbearing, sweat from the brow related to work. But admits this separation, admits kind of uh, being kicked out of the garden and in the presence of God. There was this hope dripping in Genesis 3 of restoration. And we see it primarily in two specific places. The first, after their disobedience, their Adam and Eve are living in shame. They're probably disgusted over their choice and they grab fig leaves. Now, fig leaves are rather prickly and uh, they cover themselves and they're hiding from God. And it says in the, the cool of the day, it says that God calls out for them, that he questions them and he says, where are you? Now, it's interesting how we may interpret that question, where are you? Right? Do we hear this angry, commanding officer or a loving, gracious father who wants to be with his children? And we see God pursuing Adam and Eve, right? Giving them the opportunity to confess their sin to draw near to them, to bring about restoration and hope in the relationship. Because God wasn't just after an innocent man, but he was going to bring about a relationship with a redeemed man. And we see this question. It was meant to arouse Adam and Eve's sense of being lost, sorrow over their condition, accountability before God. And we see at the end of Genesis 3 that God provides a covering for Adam and Eve, right? And this covering is the first death that's recorded in Scripture. doesn't get as much fanfare as uh, the story of Cain and Abel, but it's the first animal. And we see a picture that's carried out throughout Scripture that blood will be shed for the forgiveness of sin. Right? And so Adam and Eve are covered. But in the consequences brought about their disobedience, there's this proclamation that is made. And it's as if God is just like um, excited to share the hope of restoration. We see this in Genesis 3.15. 
He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and yours and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. How significant between the offspring and hers, right? That the prophecy gives the first hint of the virgin birth, declaring that the Messiah, the deliverer, would be the seed of a woman. His plan did not just include this innocent man, but also the redeemed man, that he would bring about deliverance. This passage is kind of uh, referred to as the first gospel. Martin Luther says, This text embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures. We see kind of the hope of restoration that is put into motion in the beginning of the story. That in their disobedience, that Satan seems to claim victory, but God is flush with excitement to bring about his ultimate plan. And we see this plan begin to take shape. We see that God invites Abram to uh, be his child, right? That he gives him this promise that he will be blessed to be a blessing, and it is carried down to his children and to his family. And this family ends up becoming the nation of Israel, his treasured possession, that they are the ones that receive God's blessing to be a blessing to the rest of the world. But they end up failing in trusting God's character, his goodness, his promise. They end up turning and going astray and going their own way. God continues to bring about prophets to turn them back towards him. But ultimately, he knows that one day he himself will have to fulfill this plan. And we see this in the pages of the New Testament that look back to the Old Testament, but look forward to the relationship that God desires with humanity. And that is bringing about the second Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 says, So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, a life-giving spirit. Jesus was the last man without sin nature. He was both human and divine. He was God with skin on. And he was created, born, that we're going to celebrate here in Christmas, sinless. Born of a child, born of the Virgin Mary, with God as his father. And we see this connection in Matthew, that he's tying Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecies for many, many years. But where Adam and where Israel failed, Jesus would ultimately fulfill. And we see at the beginning of his public ministry that Jesus has an encounter with Satan, where Satan is trying to trap, trying to have Jesus believe lies about who he was and who God was. And it's recorded in Matthew 4, also in Mark, in Luke 4. And it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. It can also mean to be tested. It's the same Greek word by the devil. It's interesting that his testing takes place in the wilderness. 
right? The wilderness was often associated with the place of demonic activity, but there's more than that. Because Matthew hearkened his readers back to the idea of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, where they had the opportunity to be led by God daily, that they saw his presence throughout the day and every evening. But they went their own way, right? And in their disobedience, they failed to fulfill the call that God had for them. And so this kind of temptation would be reminiscent of Jesus as the fulfillment that he trusted in God's promises. And as Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. You see, at the end of these 40 days, that he was hungry. <laughs> if you ever think of the significant understatement that, he, that that was, that through his fasting, the vulnerability he may have been in, right, in that kind of significant condition, Satan comes to him. And his first temptation says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Right? I, I find this unique. It, Jesus in his own power could have done it at any time. Right? But in his vulnerability, he takes something that isn't necessary, necessarily bad, but trying to uh, have Jesus satisfy his ap appetite outside of God's desire, God's will. Right, I, I find it interesting the connection of this temptation with that of Adam and Eve. Right, Adam and Eve had this lush garden where they were far from hungry. But Jesus, in his desperation, chose not to take the temptation. Right, And he responds. He says, it's written, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We'll see, some of you may be familiar, Jesus quotes scripture. And he quotes scripture from the same section over these three temptations. It's from Deuteronomy 6 through chapter 8. And Deuteronomy 6 begins with um, this prayer that was recited, and it's still today by Jewish people, the Shema. And the Shema goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You see here that he's referencing uh, as Israel was wandering in the wilderness, they're crying out for manna and God's provision rather than trust. They were kind of demanding of God rather than trusting in his provision we see that there's a second temptation. It says that the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. I find it interesting that Satan here is quoting scripture that he probably knows scripture better than you and I, right? But he was twisting scripture. He was using a psalm, Psalm 91, 11, that was known as a, a psalm of protection. 
right? But what he was questioning Jesus was related to his identity, right? This is the second time we see this, that if you are the son of God, prove yourself, prove that God is for you and that God is with you. Do you remember what happened previously right before this temptation? Jesus was baptized. And in that, the Holy Spirit had descended. God the Father spoke and said, This is my Son in whom I'm pleased. That Satan went right as his identity as a child of God, in his relationship with God. That he was saying, Prove yourself that God is with you. But Jesus' response says, do not put the Lord God to test, right? Another instance where the people in the nation of Israel, there was this story that um, they had landed at a place that God was providing them manna, right? But they were thirsty and they got to this place and they were questioning Moses of striking this rock. They were trying to call the shots rather than trusting God for his provision. And Jesus quotes directly from that story in Deuteronomy, not to put the Lord God to the test. We see that there was one final temptation in Matthew 8. It is the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this... I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. It says the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. The Satan offers Jesus the world, the kingdom, the authority that he has, right? That we see this kind of connection to um, the temptations of Jesus with that of Adam and Eve and how where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeded, that he was the fulfillment. And we see that he was offered the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the kingdom of the world, the pride of life to prove himself. That what Satan was trying to twist was trying to tell Jesus to satisfy his appetite outside of the goodness of God, apart from God's goodness. Here he was tempting Jesus not to do anything inherently bad to uh, eat, right, when he was hungry. How often do we try and fill our appetites outside of God's desire and God's will? Maybe that appetite is relationships. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's food, alcohol, money, sports. You fill in the blank that often we can try and take control rather than living in submissive obedience to God's desires, trusting in his plan, trusting in his provision. That we take the reins and determine how we'll fill our need rather than being dependent upon him for his need. We also see that Satan offered him the splendor without suffering, a kingdom without a cross. I envision that this temptation 
had to be pretty difficult. And it reminds me um, of Jesus and his later earthly ministry. He had gathered the disciples and he had a uh, bold, somewhat faithful follower of his, Peter. And Jesus um, asked his disciples who they believe he is. And Peter stands up and claims, you are the Messiah. You are God himself. Right? Then Jesus goes on. And it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. At the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. He was telling them of the suffering that was to come, that he was going to encounter. It says Peter, bold, brash, took him aside because this was not part of his paradigm, his perspective of what Jesus had come to do. He says, Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. Probably not the best idea, but he says, never, Lord, right? This shall never happen to you. He's concerned about him. He doesn't want to experience him. Now look at the significance. Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. The same temptation that was there in the wilderness is the same lie that Peter believed. That he could have splendor without suffering. That there would be a kingdom without a cross. That Jesus, when he called his disciples to follow them, he told them that they too would bear their own cross. That it'd be one of sacrifice, one of suffering, one of a lack of comfort at times, that following him wasn't easy, but it was worth it. And that same temptation was given to Jesus, but he succeeded where Adam failed. You see the outcome ultimately of the life of Jesus. That life came to all through his obedience on the cross that you and I can be restored in right relationship with a perfect and holy God because Jesus chose faithfulness. He didn't shortcut the, God's plan for him. He didn't take his own reins, but in faithful submission and obedience, he became the perfect sacrifice that was necessary for humanity to be restored with God. That Jesus in his death was crowned with thorns that he bore the curse that you and I deserved. But he was able to triumph through his trust in God's provision, his protection, and his promises. That Jesus was convinced that God's plan was ideal. Though it may not be easy, it was right and it was true. The second scene ends and we are left kind of with the third scene, us, uh, Adam and others, right? But we know um, that we are born in rebellion because of sin that has entered our world, that we are born estranged and separated from God. And we also know that there's probably certain environments and settings that uh, 
we are more capable uh, to make unwise choices. There are certain settings that we're more vulnerable. That for Adam, he represents our earthly nature. But Jesus offers us his spiritual nature, right? So that we can be made right, that we don't have to live just by our sinful desires or the flesh, but we can live according to his spirit. We live in a fallen world. We're under the siege of evil powers of darkness and temptation, attacks, and lies. I like how AA puts it, that there are certain people, places, and things that we have to be aware of, that we have to be sensitive That often Satan may attack us on our peaks, our highs, and in our valleys. That we have to be aware of the settings that may be open to temptations that we will face. You see, these temptations are the same for us as they were for them. In 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God will live forever. You see, the temptations that you and I face are the same temptations that they faced, an appeal to our physical desires, an appeal to wealth, material goods, power, an appeal to our ego, to feel worthy. Rick Warren and John Baker uh, wrote a curriculum called Celebrate Recovery that has helped many individuals in their struggle with sin. And they share about Uh, kind of three temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And they said the lust of the flesh, it can often include our sexual instincts. The lust of the eyes, our desire for goods or power, is this desire for security. The pride of life is a desire to have status in relation to others. This social challenge, struggle, temptation. Thomas Aquinas says, just as a man is tempted by flesh, so too is he tempted by the world and the devil. You see, the same lies that they believed, these ancient lies, show up in modern slogans. It's like we can hear the same hiss of the serpent in the lies that we encounter all the time. Believe in yourselves. (laughs) Follow your hearts. The answers are within. You do you. Right? Not as much of a hiss in that one. Right? But these ancient lies show up in modern slogans. Right? This individualism that we see is so prevalent is nothing new. It has shown up. It's been part of Satan's rhetoric from the beginning. You know, believe in yourself, that you are good enough. That's at the core of many religions that within us, we have the power to overcome, right? To become like God. 
those same temptations that existed then are available for you and I to believe in. That at times there's nothing new under the sun. That the dogmas of the ancient snake are just as real and present. But the trust that we have or the question is, is God sovereign? It is only within this creature-creator distinction where we can truly find the freedom that you and I desire. It's only within the truth of acknowledgement of our sin do we find grace to cover our shame, to give us hope of restoration. It's only in a trust in God's goodness that we find peace. We're only truly satisfied when we find our satisfaction in him. Now, the outcome for you and I is what we've talked about throughout the series. I like how Aiden said last week, you probably have a tattoo of it by now because we've mentioned it so often. But we find ourselves at times in a vicious cycle that Satan is the father of lies and those lies are uh, fed to our fleshly desires. They're normalized. And in the world, which is under the ruler of the kingdom of air, of Satan's authority, we live in this cycle of lies, of sin, of deception. But the opportunity and the choice, because of what Jesus has done for you and I, is he offers us an alternative path. And this alternative path is admits the world that we live in that he invites us in this intimate relationship and connection with him. That even though we don't escape the world, he invites us to be in the world and not of it, but rather to find our source of truth within him. He says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. That the Spirit... John 16, 13 calls it the spirit of truth. That when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak his own. He will speak only what he hears. That when we have said yes to Jesus, that we are given his spirit to lead us, to guide us into all truth. And that help is available. Hebrews 2 says, For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a faithful, a merciful high priest in service to God, that he may make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So admits this path that we find ourselves on, God invites us into this intimate relationship with himself. One of help, one of guidance. What is truth? I believe the same question that he came to Adam and Eve is the same question that he poses to us today. Where are you? It's not a question of an angry commanding officer. But it's a question of a crying, anguished father who is after his child. It's a question of 
invitation into intimacy. It's a question from a God who wants to give us abundant life, but he knows that the devil comes to seek, kill, and destroy. That there's pain, there's consequences that he never desires for. He doesn't promise us an easy life, but a full life. One of meaning, of purpose, of significance. That we too can triumph not in our own power, but on our dependency on him. By recognizing that help is available. That his goodness is true. That we can trust in him to lead us, to guide us. That Jesus invites us on this alternative path that we can't escape the reality that we find ourselves in, but admits that reality, we can live differently. We can live with a purpose, we can live with a direction, we can live with assistance. Where are you? What path do you currently find yourself on? It's never too late for us to acknowledge where we're at and take the alternative path that Jesus offers. Father, that's our hope. That's our desire. Lord, we thank you that you have overcome, that you have triumphed, that you are the fulfillment. Not only that you serve a model of how we fight temptation, but Lord, it is in your power that we have that we can battle the lies of Satan. Lord, I pray individually as a church family, that we'd be wise, that we'd be discerning, that we'd be intentional, that we'd not be trapped in the same manner that so many others find themselves in, that we'd relish in the freedom, in the joy, in the peace that only you can provide. Lord, we need you. We love you. Thank you that you made yourself available. In Jesus' name, amen.